What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And welcome back to the podcast out of the great state of Texas. Texas. Bridge Radio. I'm your host, Julio Ahmad Rodriguez. And across from me, the AW is back. Woo woo. I'm back. And I'm not sick either. I yeah, was you're sick not sick. Last, yeah. last week. And, and I just want to thank, uh, just have the audience uh, hear this and, and I'll thank Abe. I was sick last week and he delivered my laptop to me, to uh, my house. Yeah. Your laptop. Like a really true friend and a commitment to the Lord's ministry. Yes, and the Matthew comment or the Matthew uh, series that you're doing your Bible study on Wednesday. So it was not just your laptop, it was some other things too. But. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. It was, it was more credit to <laughs> Abe's awesome. Abe's uh, awesome. No, he no. helped me last week. I was under the weather. But I really hope you guys enjoyed um, the Dr. Michael Whitmer series that we just published. We had a conference on faith, doubt, and calling. Mm. It's up on YouTube. It's now up on uh, our app, which you could download on all the major app stores, just type in Bridge Ministries. You'll see our name, slogan, coffee and good news, and yeah. hit the download. And you can find Bridge Radio there and that. I just uploaded today the PDF files so you could follow along with Dr. Michael Whitmer's session, sessions, take notes, uh, a lot of really good stuff. But yeah. um, today's topic, we're going to be talking about the existence of Abraham. Yeah. The existence of Abraham. That's a. I didn't I, know that, that was like an issue. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess it is. <laughs> I, I was texting with uh, our, our guest, and I was like, hey, man, I need to bring you back on the program. You always got to get IP back on the program. <laughs> yeah. I, we've had him already like two, two, three times. And uh, and actually, Anna did Hartog, Steve's daughter, was in here, and she was like, oh, what's your interview about? And I was like, the existence of Abraham. She says, really? That's that's an issue? I didn't know that was an issue. I go, yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's an, just kind of like the existence of Jesus yeah. one was. We, we had IP come on and do that one. Um, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. I started off with Romans chapter 4 because... I mean, to kind of put it into perspective, if Abraham didn't exist, then the appeals of the New Testament are false. Yeah. Right? Like, we really have no objective appeal in history to a person of Abraham, mm. our forefather, like Paul yeah. said. And it's all a myth. It's all a lie. And everything kind of also, too, hinges hinges on kind of Abraham existing in, mm -hmm. in Israel and, and I and mean, salvation, all, salvation too. Yeah. I mean, the, the line the lineage, I mean, yeah. there's a lot that hangs on, um, on that, just the truth of scripture, the yeah. infallibility of scripture. So we're just, I, I think it's, it's a intriguing topic. I've never heard, um, really like positive arguments for it. I, I, I believe it obviously. And I know there's, there has to be some evidence. Archaeology is always coming up with yeah. stuff that's that the Bible, the people are saying, Hey, that's not true. And then evidence ends up. Coming yeah. Up. Uh, and, and I find it interesting too. Like whenever, uh, we were just reading the Bible and, and how they would do with this Distinguish the God, the true God of this universe in Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I always refer to the to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. right. So it's going to be interesting to see. How, yeah. how, I, I, I'm looking forward to this for sure. Right. Yeah, so what's what's new? What's going on? The boss is out. The boss is out. Yeah. He's in Michigan. He's, He's on Michigan. a little vacay slash yeah. uh, talking up with our supporters, and uh, yeah, we're excited. Still, uh, still grinding, trying to get the uh, the funds for the building. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, you want to talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, just for our listeners, uh, we uh, are in the beginning of stages just rolling out uh, for a new facility. I know that we've been talking about it, but um, the facility here is very, very small. 
um, for what um, w- the, the ministry is doing with Bible studies and guitar lesson and homeschooling. And uh, I mean, we're like under like what we're like 1900 square feet or 2000 two, or 2000 square feet, something like that. Um, and we just feel that God is leading the ministry to get a, a, a uh, bigger facility. A, a facility to bigger to to be able to accommodate the community a lot better. Mm-hmm. So if you um god is moving you to give to bridge um uh, please do so um every single penny counts yeah uh, we'll take anything um and it's only because of you guys that we're able to do uh the podcast podcast, and everything so thank you again uh like always and and hopefully we can raise enough money that we can go and um and go in the facility and maybe hopefully in the future uh, bring in more staff um, yeah. and conferences, Bible conferences, studies, Bible study, a lot, a lot of, a, yeah. Um, and, 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 and we will uh, go on God's time. Right. You know, yeah. uh, the, we, you know, we were talking about last week, you mm-hmm. know, we'll stay here as long as uh, God will have us here. Um, but uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. He's just moving in, right. in, in in the hearts of the team here to yeah. to to get to a better place and just the impact that we've just seen in our community, uh, in our community because of Bridge. So yeah, um, yeah. If I, I want to ask everybody to please prayerfully consider supporting us. Yes. Um, and if you feel led to give, BridgeMinLaredo.org/giving, mm-hmm. and you can go there and make a donation. So. Are we ready for the interview? Let's do it. Let's bring on my homeboy. Yes. He's been a uh, friend and an OG to the Bridge Radio podcast for quite a while. Um, I've gotten to know him. He's definitely one of the uh, young uh, up-and-coming apologists, and uh, I I, I really enjoy his ministry, his YouTube channel. Um, Welcome back again, IP, Inspiring Philosophy, Michael Jones. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate coming back on and talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, what um, I, I get, I, I want to start off first by talking about your your ministry because I know every time we've you've ha- you've come on the program, you've always kind of updated us on how that's going. Um, I can't even remember the last time you were on the program. I think it was actually on the existence of Jesus. It was yeah, on that, the existence yeah, of Jesus. Yeah, I was trying to remember the last time. I was like, yeah, we've been on together. Yeah, yeah it's it on was, the existence uh, of Jesus. And, and we said the same thing. I was like, so people people are questioning whether Jesus existed or right, not. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, how is how is uh, inspiring philosophy uh, doing right now? The you know up and coming stuff. That's great. I got I reached over a hundred thousand subscribers this year. I'm gonna, about to start running the ministry full time, and I got a whole bunch of pretty long videos planned for this winter on ancient monotheism. Wow. wow. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I, re- I remember our first interview with you, and you that was one of your desires is to be full-time. So you're already almost there, man. Awesome. And then uh, recently, too, you debated um, Aaron Raw. How was how was that like? <laughs> I, I got to see a little footage, man. It went really well. I thought he was a very nice guy before. However, after, he kind of got a little a little <laughs> shrewd in some of his replies and things he said. But before, we got along well. And I thought the debate went really well. I got a lot of, a lot of good feedback from atheists, uh, people saying, well, you cited all the studies and research, and yeah. he didn't bring any, you know? So right. it went really well. And, th- and then he got mad at Eric a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, that that turned into a whole thing in and of itself. Right, right, right. Um, and then, too, I know I, I was going across my feed on Facebook, and I saw that you and a couple of other people made a track against uh, Aaron Raw's myths or I, was that real or i, I just kind of well, no what happened was so there's a uh, up-and-coming scholar his name is chris hansen and he wrote a uh he's not a christian I'll, I'll, I'll remind you of that i mean he was an atheist i think he's go i think he's a polytheist now but he wanted to he was trying to talk to Arn raw about some of the 
historical problems that he keeps presenting in his videos and so oh. I wouldn't listen. So he published like a short little 30 page book booklet, just debunking a bunch of his claims. And he asked me to write the forward for it. So I was glad to do that. <laughs> oh, wow. Was Isn't it Aaron Raw the one who do we have on our podcast? And I was like, it was he, Matt. It was Matt, Matt Slick. Slick. That looked like the worldly wise man from the 1979 uh, great mm -hmm. hit with Liam Neeson's Pilgrim Progress. Okay. And, and he played. Yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> it, it is true. If you go look at it. So. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. We're not. We're not. I'm not bashing his, how it's yeah. just. It's just really uncanny and, yeah. and just he plays like this devilish, you know, guy on <laughs> yeah, on that yeah. movie and yeah. So that's it. All right, Michael Jones. So we're gonna get into the existence of Abraham. Um, I was before I came in, I was talking with the president's daughter, and she was like, "That's that's an issue." Like I, I thought people just sort of like that was like a, a fact that Abraham existed. Um, how, how was kind of that in the I guess scholarly community, um, you know, has this always kind of been an issue of, of skepticism? With well, it's a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, in the scholarly scholarly community, not a lot are going to accept the whole story of Abraham. Right. Mm. Uh, some just deny that he exists altogether, and he's a fabricated myth, which is kind of weird. But you know, when it comes to the Bible, we know the Bible is always guilty until proven innocent. Right. Mm, so unless yeah. we got like a le like a stone tablet that dates to like. 1800 bc that says i abraham put a stone here like yeah. even then some people would still be like i don't know if that's the real Abraham. <laughs> yeah. another guy and, right but it, it's very interesting it's you know it's like there are like for example when it becomes like the epic of gilgamesh uh, the, from what i've seen the majority of scholars think gilgamesh existed because he comes up in kingless he comes up in genealogies okay and they go well, i don't believe everything happened in the epic of gilgamesh it's obviously a myth but he obviously was just some king from Uruk some like 6,000 years ago. But when it comes to Abraham, it's like, no, it's for some scholars, he's no total myth. No guy like that could have ever existed, oh. even though there's so many correlations to him and the, right. the account of Abraham correlates right. to history. Right. And, um, you know, just kind of on that note, because you, you mentioned like it's not until we find like a stone tablet, then everyone goes, oh, okay, they'll give some credit to it. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of just because there's um, absence of evidence it doesn't mean that there's that's evidence of absence and also maybe kind of give some examples of just you know times where skeptics would be like see the bible's not true because of this and then archaeology archaeology evidence ends up coming forward yeah this is it's this idea that we sort of have the entire history mapped out like there's no more there's nothing more left to find and that's just not the case even with like egyptian chronology which we know a lot about there was a time period when Akhenaten was supposed to be co-regent with his father, Amenhotep III. But we don't have any actual documentation about how long that was. So mm -hmm. some scholars say it was 10 years, some say seven, some say two, one, zero. And so there's a big debate about how long this co-regency was. But that throws off all of chronology before that point. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we knew everything that was happening during the – there's entire gaps in the Egyptian chronology for like hundreds of years where well, we don't know what's going on because there's no tablets or inscriptions from that time period. Mm. And there are some times when we read like a king from like the 18th dynasty and we know what he was doing like two years out of like his 37 years that he was <laughs> reigning. Like, it's right, like we don't yeah. know everything about it. But okay. to, to quote from David E. Graves' book, Biblical Archaeology, he says, very few of the ancient sites have been surveyed or even found. Osborne points out that a number of the sites rose from 300 in 1944 to 5,000 in 1963 to 7,000 by 1970. Perhaps 60% of those have been surveyed. 
Hmm. Of them that are excavated, Osborne calculates that of the 5,000 in Palestine in 1963, only about 150 have been excavated in part, and hmm. only 26 have, have become major sites. Uh, uh, Yigel Yadid, who excavated Hazor, says he could finish excavating the whole site of Hazor. It wouldn't be hard. He just needs about another 800 years. Wow. Because it's, uh, such a, it's a giant site, yeah, and this yeah. is a slow process. Mm-hmm. So this idea that, you know, like, well, we've not found any evidence of this person in history. Therefore, the Bible made him up. It's just bonkers. Yeah. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you're not familiar with the archaeology and the research yeah. being done and how little – we know about these time right, periods, right. but even the little we found, we found exorbitant amount of evidence to confirm the biblical account, or at least things that line or correlate with the biblical account. Right, and and I find it interesting too that the Muslims are at the Temple Mount trying to destroy evidence that they dig out, and you know, I, you know, if you go to Israel, they the Israelis are just taking all the stuff that they're taking out and dumping in the back, and they're just going through it. And as the more we dig into the sand, uh, if, if, uh, I feel that the Bible just becomes more and more true as these evidence just keep popping up more and more. Do you find that I mean, to be I, true? I, absolutely. I, I mean, I just did a video at, uh, this year called Biblical Archaeology Eden, where I identify you know, what some scholars have said, right, I think we found the Garden of Eden is below the Persian Gulf, and that was flooded at some point, hint, hint. So, you know, we're finding evidence constantly. I'm going to do videos in 2020 on the flood, on who Nimrod was, on where the Tower of Babel was. Mm. I'll probably do a three-part or four-part series on Abraham. I mean, there's a lot of data to go over. Hmm. All right. And and I had text, I sent you a text message recently. It was like, like last week or so. I sent you a video. It was like a 30-minute video. I'd never seen it before. Actually, Jeff, uh, oh, Jeff Durbin shared it, and I kind of watched it. But it was on uh, just some... I guess would be evidence or maybe evidence of um, of, uh, of Moses, Mount Sinai, and all that. Um, before we kind of jump into Abraham, what what are your thoughts on that? On that individual? Uh, I know Ron Wyatt, an, an archaeologist, made some claims, and and I, I would like really like to get your thoughts on that. <laughs> okay, anytime someone says Ron Wyatt, the hair on my neck goes up. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Even <laughs> even Ken Ham, I, I think, has on his website. I read one time. He's like, "Don't listen to that guy." <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the site you're talking about has not been excavated by professional archaeologists, which is a problem. Mm. But the main reason is because the Arabian government won't let archaeologists in to excavate these areas. Mm. So there have been some other mountains in Arabia proposed. I do think Mount Sinai is in Arabia. I don't think it's on the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, But until we can actually get some published reports on excavated sites in there, I'm just not going to, like, throw my hat in on any of the mountains there. I want to wait until there's a peer-reviewed paper. Right, mm. right. See, and this is what I like about Michael Jones. He's very factual-based. He does his research, stuff that I, yeah. you know, I, I have no interest in, but I, I'm interested in hearing about, so. And isn't that, like, <laughs> the, isn't that like the Turkey government very just strict, too, on doing excavating on uh, so, uh, biblical sites? Uh, mm, not so much. Not uh, so they're much? actually, okay. like, so, like, they have a, they've put up an actual tourist site on where the, on Mount Ararat, like, Come see Noah's Ark, even though there's no evidence Noah's Ark is mm, ever yeah. on Mount okay. Ararat. But right. they, they, they love it. They, they would love more because they give some tourism. So, you know, they right. jump I mean, on that kind of stuff. Right. It's Arabia that's kind of like the Saudis are the kind Saudis. of like, I don't know. We trust yeah. any of those Westerners in our country. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, all right. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Abraham. Let's dive into the subject. Um I know one of the things you wanted to talk about, which which was the, the time period. Uh, when, when did Abraham live? Yeah, so we need to talk about this because if you take a literal reading of all the numbers in the Bible, you're putting Abraham being born at about uh, 2166 B.C. 
uh, that puts him into something like the early Bronze Age, sometimes called the Intermediate Bronze Age. And I, I, for example, one of the things scholars have identified, even very conservative scholars like Kenneth Kitchen, is a lot of the numbers in the Bible are more idealized numbers. Uh, they don't actually – they're not actually representing like real history. They use numbers in this time period to sort of give people honor. And I think the text kind of speaks to that. Okay. So at one point in um, – so at one point in the Bible, Abraham, God is telling Abraham he's going to have a son, and Abraham laughs. It's in Genesis 18, and you know he says, shall a man who's 100 have a kid? It's mm-hmm. like people over the age of 100 don't have a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if the ages are literal, Terah had Abraham when he was 130. So Abraham should really be saying something like, oh, yeah, like my father did. That's normal. We do that all the time down here, God. Mm. Why are you thinking this is going to be miraculous? People never – people have children over the age of 100 all the time. Mm. And mm-hmm. so what scholars like Nahum Sarna, Craig Olson have sort of identified is like if you start getting into like uh, the new the, – how numbers are used in the Bible, they may just be sort of like idealistic type numbers. I'll have a video up on this soon on my channel kind of going mm-hmm. over the evidence for this. And so – uh, if you kind of look at the numbers more as symbolic, you're going to move the timeline up, and that's going to move Abraham to about the Middle Bronze Age. And this is a time period about 1800 BC to 1500 BC, so roughly around that time. This is, I'm sorry, that's the Middle Bronze Age too, because there's the Middle Bronze Age one, which came before that, which is like uh, uh, 2000 BC to like 1800 BC. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to take the numbers symbolically, you're going to move Abraham. Up to about the Middle Bronze Age, which is about starts about 1800 BC. All right. So then, what 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 external evidence matches the account of Abraham and his descendants? Well, the interesting thing is when we start looking at the evidence uh, in the account of Abraham and his descendants, it sort of debunks the idea that he could have lived during the earlier Intermediate Bronze Age. Well, at the same time, confirming. Um, giving strong indication that the account is of a guy who lived in the Middle Bronze Age, therefore making the account more reliable. So if you see some very strict young Earth creationists who say, no, they're literal ages, they have to sort of like change things and make excuses for this data. But if you just take the, the, the literal reading and realize it's talking about the Middle Bronze Age, it correlates expon- it, like unbelievably well to the point where the, the accounts look far more reliable. Hmm. So, I mean, they just go through some of this data. Uh, Abraham goes to Egypt. Well, during the uh, Intermediate Bronze Age or the Early Bronze Age, Egypt was going something going through something called the inter- First Intermediate Period, and they were sort of cut off from the rest of the ancient Near East. There was not, not a, lot, a lot of straight, a lot of um, trade routes. The teaching of Merkure or the uh, uh, the manuscript of Ippor warns against trusting Canaanites. It's like you know we don't really want to trust those people. Don't invite them down. But during the Middle Bronze Age and during the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, the, the Egyptian pharaohs were welcoming uh, Canaanites constantly into their region, like, come on okay. down, trade with us. This is great. Mm-hmm. Abraham goes down there. Jacob goes down there. It seems to correlate with the time of Middle Bronze Age when Semites were going back and forth between Egypt a lot. Okay. And also, they, had, they, didn't, um, they would have entered the land of Goshen. Well, there was no strong presence of, uh, uh, of an Egyptian like pharaoh living in that sort of region. They were more focused around Memphis, but during the Middle Bronze Age, during the Middle Kingdom, they were set up a royal residence in that area where Abraham could have been greeted by them. So it, it's it sort of just sort of welcoming in there. So we have evidence of strong trade routes. Uh, we also know that Middle and New Kingdom pharaohs were really attracted to foreign women. Uh, hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what we see in the kind of Abraham. But prior to that, they were sort of sticking to more to their Egyptian culture, their Egyptian 
uh, internal affairs because of you know they were during it was during the first intermediate period where there was internal uh, war and struggle. So there's other things. So the existence of cities. So Israel Finkelstein says important biblical sites that are mentioned in the Abraham stories, such as Shechem, Beersheba, and Hebron, do not yield finds in the intermediate or early Bronze Age. These sites were simply not inhabited at that time. And this is the same for places like Bethel, Ea, Gerur, Lesh, um, and I said Hebron. But during the Middle Bronze Age, these places are thriving uh, towns and cities. Um, you know, Laish is actually mentioned in the Mari documents, which date to around 1800 BC and forward. Uh, interestingly enough, Beersheba is not really a town until like Iron Age. But in Genesis 21, it refers to it as just a group of wells. So that actually correlates with the Middle Bronze Age as well. But see, a lot of the cities that Abraham or the towns that Abraham existed or visited just simply didn't exist in the um, in the early Bronze Age. They are existing in the Middle Bronze Age and whatnot. So it's actually kind of interesting that the account uh, sort of you know, mentioning these places off the cuff, and they sort of all line up to the Middle Bronze Age. If this was all like mythological stuff fabricated, we would see we would see a mixed bag. Like some things would probably correlate to early. Someone correlate to a late, someone correlate to Middle Bronze Age, but it seems all of our data is lining up with Middle Bronze Age stuff, which is really hard to get right if you if you don't have it, you know, like libraries or the internet back then. So yeah, so let's also think of um, uh, treaties. So uh, some there's treaties that are mentioned in Genesis 21, 27, 26, and 31, and they follow a basic structure of like a witness. God sometimes um, is the witness, followed by an oath, then stipulations, and then a ceremony, and then a curse. Now, these are a little different than later Iron Age treaties, but they do correlate with treaties we find at Mari and Leyland. So they correlate quite well because they follow the same basic structure. So treaties we see at Mari, for example, start with a witness, witness, then an oath, then they have stipulations followed by a ceremony, and then a curse. Okay. So you see the same thing in like Genesis 26 with a uh, treaty between Isaac and Gur. They, they have like, you know, Yahweh is the witness, and there's an oath. Then there's stipulations; they have to be good neighbors, followed by a feast, and then curses are implied. Same with Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. Mm. So the treaties fit very much with the time period of Mari, uh, when that city was. Um, so a little background: Mari was a city in the ancient Near East, and it was eventually destroyed. And all of these tablets were sort of buried and lost for like 4,000 years till we found them mm. in the past, uh, like 200 years or so. Okay. And so we can we we dug them up, and we're finding correlations with what we see in Genesis. Uh, so that's another thing that sort of lines up quite well. An another interesting thing, for example, is the price of a slave. So in Genesis 37, it says the price that they sold Joseph into slavery was 20 shekels of silver. Well, later uh, in like Iron Age and late Bronze Age, the price of slavery goes up. You're seeing like 50, 60, some, or somewhere around that time for shekels. But right in the middle Bronze Age, it's about 20 shekels across the ancient Near East in Egypt, in Canaan, that kind of thing. So somehow they got the prices of the slave right. Now you might think, big deal, whatever. But okay, think of it from this perspective. Uh, tell me the price of, I don't know, flour in um, the 1700s here in, I don't know, Massachusetts or where, wherever, you know, one of the colonies. You probably couldn't do it unless you Googled it. Could you tell me, could you do it for a thousand years ago? Like, uh, because that's, if they were fabricating history during the Babylonian exile, we're talking over a thousand years, and they just happened to get the price of the slavery of, of a slave right. So it's like little things like that need to line up, and they do constantly. Okay. Wow. So 
I guess that's the evidence when you do a little investigating. You, yeah, you know, that's the evidence. That's that, the evidence that Ab- Abraham. Well, at least just the time period. Yeah, this is just this is a time period evidence. You're you're arguing here just for. Right. This is the same price as say we see at Mari and in the mm-hmm. Code of Hammurabi. Mm-hmm. Again, those things were lost and buried for thousands of years. So it's not like the the, uh, the Jews living in Babylonian exile could go check up on those things. Okay. It would have to come down from reliable oral traditions handed down to them. Okay. And so if you're fabricating history, you tend to get those little things wrong, and then you have to see it like you know apologists or uh, scholars making excuses like, well, maybe the price of slave was different in this region or that thing. But no, it just lines up. So that kind of thing is what we are looking for when we're looking for reliability. If you're fabricating history, you don't get little details like this right. So, um, Michael, as uh, let's talk about the coalition of kings in Genesis 14. Does that match anything historically? Absolutely. That's one of the interesting things. So it talks about this coalition of kings that comes together to fight against the city of the plains. You know, we know him as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, mm-hmm. if Abraham existed in the intermediate Bronze Age— or the early Bronze Age, that wouldn't make sense because up to about 2000 BC, the re- all of Mesopotamia was controlled by the Sumerian, this sort of the Sumerian Empire that uh, controlled the whole region. However, after this this time period, the empire basically dissolved and broke up, and we don't hear about the Sumerians anymore after this. Mm-hmm. And it devo- dissolved into all these little kingdoms. Uh, you see Mari come up soon after that. Um, there's um, a couple other kingdoms that sort of just arise after that on the basic area. So there, and what's interesting is we do see coalitions of kings starting to form that. So prior to this, there's a there's a area in like southern Iran that's on the other side of the Persian Gulf called Alam, and they were kind of like for the most of their history they kind of stuck to themselves. However, for some reason during the Middle Bronze Age, they decided to start intervening in Mesopotamian politics. They sent envoys envoys all the way into like what would is present day Syria as well as us, the early Assyrian region. So they're going all the way, basically, almost to the Mediterranean Sea and sending envoys. And they're actually they're sending troops or they're helping in these sorts of things. So you start to see these coalitions type forming. Well, that fits with what we see in Genesis 14, with this coalition of kings coming against the city of the plains. Uh, in one part, um, uh, there was a, a king, uh, Shamshi Adad I. He mobilized 20,000 troops into the Assyrian region to help out the, the, Katat, the Katna uh, region. So we see a lot of this starting to line up. And interestingly enough, there's a text at Mari uh, of Yuck. Uh, I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, just so you know. But it's all right. It's the Yuck, <laughs> it's the yuck Dun Lim text. And what's very interesting is that it very correlates to, the bat, to uh, what we read in Genesis 14. Now, I'm not saying they're describing the same battle, but they're using the same structure uh, to describe how the battle unfolded. So what we see in, in these texts at Mari is that there's a first a raid, you know, a raid that happens. However, then there's a revolt that happens. So then he's got to launch a second raid, and he claims victory. Then there's a religious celebration, dedications at a temple. And then, of course, at the end, there's um, other things that you can sort of see, like there's you know, harms, there's distributing of you know, different items and whatnot. And there's also the entire text is like it's like the god Shamash is guiding me. He's telling me to go do these things. Well, if you read Genesis 14, it follows the same structure and flow. First, there's a raid, and then there's, they're, they're, the city of the plains are made vassals. But then there's a revolt in verse 4. Then victory uh, mm-hmm. happens, but this time it's victory for Abraham. Then uh, there's a, a, a ceremony with Melchizedek and ties, and then settling of the spoils. 
So it follows the same basic structure and flow of how war chronicle, war annals were sort of uh, told at Mari. So surprisingly enough, not only does the coalition of kings fit with the time period of there being these multiple kings working together to fight different battles or help each other out, how they describe the battle uh, fits with how they would chron- like how they would uh, uh, chronicle their wars. All right. So you're, now you're not arguing that 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 text is the battle of Genesis 14. You're just arguing for the structure. Therefore, this correlates with the time period. Am I am I correct? Yeah, they, they're, yeah. They're not using the way you would do you would chronicle war annals in like the Iron Age. Sure. They're using uh, the way they did it at Mari, which again was buried and lost for thousands of years, and mm-hmm. we had little evidence of it since then. So there again, it's it's like these little details need to line up, and they always seem to line up in this, these these different cases. Okay, now I guess someone might be thinking because the episode you know is going to be titled um, "The Existence for Abraham." Now, so far we've been talking about more of a timeline and nailing it down. I think that is solid evidence to to fit it in in what you're arguing uh, for. Um, but what would you say to someone who's like, "But that's not evidence for Abraham." Right. And I think, again, as I said in the early part, the Bible is always guilty until proven innocent. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the Bible is written like the counts in Genesis, especially when it comes to Abraham and the patriarchs. They're written like historical narratives. And if you have an historical narrative, why do we assume, you know, that it's guilty until proven innocent? Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to think there maybe was a guy named Abraham who was a nomadic uh, Hebrew? Who lived in this region, and then all of these people claim descendancy from him. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see why that's too hard to to um, think. As I mentioned this earlier, this one text, the Yadim Alim text at, at um, Mari, it mentions the god Shamash guiding him and telling him how to do things. Now, we don't think the god Shamash actually did that, but we do think he actually existed and actually went and fought wars in these regions and won the mm-hmm. battles. Right. We, again, we assume it's innocent until proven guilty. Why can't we do the same with Genesis? Why is it hard to accept there was just some nomad named Abraham? Okay. All right. Now, now the, the other question, and I'm going to be interested in asking this one, is what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Right. This obviously needs to line up because this is supposed to be some right. catastrophic event it is. that yeah. destroys the city of the plains. And so people look for Sodom and Gomorrah in the past, and it's, they've, been looked, they've looked around the Dead Sea. So at first we thought maybe there were cities of the plan in south of the Dead Sea, but the dates weren't lining up. Like one city was destroyed like 2300 BC, and then another city was destroyed like hundreds of years before it or after. So like the five cities we were looking for down there just didn't line up. How, and so, however, people got kind of excited at one point because uh, there was a discovery of a, of a city at Elba that was basically destroyed around 2300 BC. And it listed these cities of the plain in a specific order. And so people kind of got excited, and they're like, we'll see they're mentioning the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. That's been debated since then. It may not actually line up, but it still is possible. But even if that's wrong, it still isn't – I don't think it's a big deal because recently there was an archaeologist named Stephen Collins who went north of the Dead Sea, and he excavated the Tel Haman site. And he found these massive cities right there. One city was huge. It was a gigantic area that was suddenly destroyed catastrophically. And he says, the quote, we have pieces of pottery melted into glass, like bubble, uh, some bubbled like lava found across the site. Hmm. Uh, they're estimating that it exceeded 2000 degrees Fahrenheit at this place. And it happened suddenly and catastrophic. 
Okay, this is not something that happens from raiders. These coming in and burning the city, maybe and leaving. Maybe if they have flame, <laughs> maybe if they have flame flamethrowers. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> so yeah, but this entire area, all these cities were catastrophically destroyed in one at one time. Guess when? Uh, guess what time they dated to? I'm thinking Middle Bronze Age. Middle Bronze Age. Wow. <laughs> yeah, lines up yet again with our data. So it. it so, you know, if again, if they were constructing history, we should see some of this stuff to line up with like early Bronze Age, maybe Middle Bronze Age. If it's all lining up with one period, that's a good indication that Abraham actually lived in the Middle Bronze Age. Yeah. And the account is just a reliable oral tradition handed down about their ancestor who lived in the Middle Bronze Age. Okay. Now, what do archaeologists say about that site? Like what, you know, happened? Yeah, so you guys to melt Potter, and then you know, the, is there any other evidence yeah, that they found? Like, uh, if you could talk a little bit more about that area. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of archaeologists or scholars are jumping on the. the well, this seems like it's the city of the plains. It, it kind of fits it. What they're saying is that it's sort of like what probably happened was an asteroid uh, came into the atmosphere and exploded just over the cities and rained fire down. Sort of like what we saw in Russia a couple decades ago, with mm-hmm. there was an asteroid that was supposed to hit up there, but it exploded in the air and caused you know. Uh, massive like destruction in that area. Mm-hmm. So what we think that's probably what happened because there's no evidence of volcanoes erupting in the area. But an asteroid would easily explain that, and it just happened to hit these cities and burn them to a crisp, uh, to the point where everything just melted. Mm-hmm. So what would you say about the person who's like, wait, what an asteroid? Uh, fi- I thought God threw down fire, you know, and and you know, down onto these cities. Uh, why, like, why are you bringing up an asteroid? Uh, yeah, just, just a well, question. So, you know, go ahead. Well, I mean, it, it's possible that it could have been supernatural, but God does use natural events to uh, to do as will. So yeah. think of like the Red Sea crossing. We tend mm-hmm. to think of the Charlton Heston film of Moses throwing his arms up in the walls, going back like these miraculous walls of water, and they could walk past. That's not really what the text says. It says an east wind blew the sea all night and created like a land bridge kind of thing for them. So God used natural processes to recreate the Red Sea crossing. So I don't see why God couldn't use natural processes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, an asteroid coming down and exploding over would be God raining fire down. It's the same thing. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's. I think when we are uh, when we read the text carefully in our Bible, you know, uh, sometimes we, like you said, we'll we'll take uh, we'll we'll have these. Uh, uh, preconceived notions of movies that we've seen in the past and we're right like, and like yes this is how it'd be and walking like, through seeing like shamu yeah. flying right next to you as you're walking through you in know wall, yeah that's that's funny <laughs> um i also too i think one time on the program i i was going to talk about with you now this is totally different but joshua when when the uh you know the moon stayed still in the sky uh or the sun i'm sorry um you know even that you, you had a way of, of explaining that but um yeah, that's that to me. I think is a lot of misreading scripture with Western eyes. So John Walton in his book uh, uh, Old Testament, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, that notes that kind of what the language is reminiscent of is what we see with regards to omens. So we'll see text talking about the the the, mo- the moon sitting in the sky with the sun, or the sun waiting for the moon, this type of stuff. So the text might not be saying the moon literally stood still. It was kind of like an omen that uh, would have been used. To sort of spook the Canaanites, like, oh, look, because the ancient Canaanites, ancient Sumerians looked at those things for good luck and bad luck. If the sun and the moon were in the sky on this evening, on this day, then it was a good sign. But if it happened a day late, it was a bad sign. So I think when we look at that, uh, you can look at more in John Walton's book on that. But I think right. it's it's Joshua basically going like, 
uh, reminding the Canaanites, basically, look, the sun and the moon are on his, uh, in the sky on a day you would consider this to be bad luck. That means your gods have abandoned you. And so then, you know, because it says the Canaanites were, were filled with fear and they started to run, that kind of thing. Okay. So I think that's probably far more likely what the text is describing. And does the internal evidence within Genesis match this Bronze Age that you're talking about? The Middle Bronze Age. Yeah, the Middle Very yeah. much so. So one of the things scholars are actually kind of uh, – this is it may not seem like much to us, but I hear scholars mentioning this all the time from Kenneth Kitchen to Trigvay Medinger is that Genesis lacks bail. It never mentions Baal, you know, Yahweh's like chief, like religious, like, you know, competition in the book of Kings and Chronicles. Oh, that's odd. I mean, why not mention, you know, the biggest thing? Well, Baal wasn't a major deity during this time. We don't see like the rise of Baal happen until during the late Bronze Age and then into the Iron Age. So uh, scholars sort of look at that and go, well, this probably does represent older traditions because it more focuses on El worship, which is very prevalent in Canaan at that time. Uh, another interesting thing is Genesis 37 mentions traveling more than 60 miles from Hebron. Uh, similar nomadic shepherds are mentioned in the Mari text doing this type of thing, traveling from you know tens of miles away from their hometown for months on end to you know for their the sake of their uh, of their uh, of their herds and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the name Benjamin correlates to another name in the Mari tablets, like Benu Yamina. Now, obviously, there wasn't anyone running around naming Benjamin. That's just an like that's kind of how it, it's kind of morphed over the years. It was probably more like Benyamina or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that name shows up in the Mari tablets. Mm. Uh, the name for Jacob, which actually starts with a Y, yeah. uh, uh, Richard Hess notes that Y prefix names are attested in the early second millennia, around the time of the Middle Bronze Age, and occur less far less occur far less frequency during the Late Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So Jacob's name actually does show up. In the in the archaeological record, probably not the same guy, but it's guy with a similar name. There's uh, one scarab during the Hyksos period in Egypt whose name is Jacob, same name that we would see in Genesis for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abram is a common name at Ugarit, Egypt, uh, Cyprus, and at Mari. People tend to think, well, the name Abram was made up because it means father. But we see that name show up in the archaeological record at Ugarit, Mari. Okay. Uh, Nahor, the name Nahor, I think it's mm-hmm. Abraham's grandfather or great-grandfather. He's mentioned at Mari. Uh, the name Terah is a moon name, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Where did Na- Abraham start? Where does he start at? Abraham, in the beginning of Gen- when he's mentioned in Genesis, he's beginning in the city of Ur, Ur yeah. which is in the- you know ancient Sumer. But that's the city of the moon god Nana. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't see anybody named Abraham during the Iron Age. I mean, I yeah. mean, it's like it was, but there's a name attested in these earlier areas that date back to bronze age time periods Hmm. so it does so again the names just fit with the culture again if you're a guy in babylon who's making up history Hmm. how are you going to even get that right again you don't have access to the internet or massive libraries yeah you you gotta and again you would have access to babylonian libraries not canaanite libraries Hmm. yet somehow they're getting a lot of these things right again little details like that keep lining up Okay. And eventually, I just say to the skeptic, "How much more do you need to think there was a guy named Abraham who lived in Canaan and was the forefather of the Hebrews? Why is that so hard to accept?" Now, why do you think they deny it? Why, why do you I, think I, there's this wall of just no, no, no? <laughs> I mean, people don't want to because people tend to uh, say you got to take it all or leave it. So they tend to go, "Well, I mean, if I accept that Abraham existed, I also got to accept he was talking to God, right?" And I'm like, mm. "No, again, I think Gilgamesh existed. I don't really think he went around on adventures with Enkidu." 
and traveled <laughs> to the edge of the world and was looking for a sacred plant. I don't think any of that happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I do think a guy named Gilgamesh was really the king of Uruk. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, you know, some like 6,000 years ago type thing. Right. <laughs> I was, I'm sorry, but I got to mention this. I was, I was, for like a millisecond, I was getting Gilgamesh com- confused with Garkamel from the Smurfs. <laughs> Please forgive me. No, wrong <laughs> You're wrong guy, but it's, that's um, it. Another question that, that I wanted to ask as you were talking, um, we did an episode one time on evidence for the Exodus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whenever you look at Genesis and then whenever you look at Exodus, and your time period with uh, and where you believe Exodus is, do, do, do those line line up? Um, yes, they do line up in terms of understanding. I mean, if, if you want to say that you know Abraham had to be exactly 430 years before Moses, sure. I'm not convinced that necessarily has to be the case because a lot of those numbers are very uh, thrown in for symbolic purposes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's pretty close. Um it is a little less per se. Uh, might be. It might actually line up. Just, just. It might barely just line up if you really want to get that 430 years in there. Right. But Hebrews really like round numbers, and so they round up all the time, mm-hmm. and they round down. They really want to get to that round number, and so I, I think it's possible, but it, it's not necessary. And so I, I do think it. But it does line up with if the Exodus happened during the 18th dynasty of Egypt around 1400 BC maybe 1440 BC, sometime in that area, you're going to get Abraham about coming in about 1700 BC, 1800 BC. He comes in about that time period. That's when roughly the time period of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is. Hmm. Now, so yeah, go ahead. do we have any evidence, um, as we were just talking earlier about Sodom and Gomorrah, we see Lot leave, uh, God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, do we have evidence for uh, of just Lot and where we, we know in the Bible he left and in one way is there any any evidence of that and where he reside at all? Uh, well, it's really it's really hard to get evidence for a specific guy. I mean, yes, it, he can't I even mean, lock down Abraham like you, you yeah, know, yeah, found yeah, him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess I should have reworded the question a little mm-hmm. bit better. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to get. You know, it'd be nice if we got something like that, but. You know, uh, for example, again, as I said, a lot of our sites still haven't even been excavated. I mean, mm. we can't even excavate the main site we want to excavate, which is Jerusalem, because there's people living there and there's <laughs> yeah. holy sites. It's hard to get in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think like like 90 percent of it hasn't even been looked at because we're just not allowed to. Yeah, but every time they do find something like they didn't find like a ancient coin with like David's name on there not too long ago. and Not a coin. We have found him on like the Teldan. Okay. Uh, inscriptions we found him on some other ones as well okay. uh there's like a moabite inscription which mentions him okay um he might be on the um one of the stilles of shoshank the first called the height um like the heights of daniel or the heights of david mm. might be on there uh but we have recently found uh little stilles of hezekiah and possibly the prophet isaiah mm-hmm. wow. so yeah we, we constantly are finding things like that as well uh, but the further we go back in time, it's harder as can be to find stuff just because it gets older yeah and it, really it would make out. sense it would yeah. make sense yeah yeah, um, you were going to share something right now. I don't. I don't know if you forgot. Well, there, well there's even more. Okay. I mean, there's even more I could go over. Like, for example, uh, so there was a, a city that was destroyed again. There were tablets found there of a city called Nuzi, and there was biblical correlations. Uh, then a bunch of scholars, um, some were like taken a little bit more serious than other, but there was a guy named Thomas Thompson who um, wrote about this and tried to debunk a lot of the comparisons. Another guy named Van Cedars as well. In the year in the seventies, now Thompson is not really like he's very liberal, like very on the other end. Like this is all mythology, 
but it, it, you know, and you, you'll see like Jesus mysticists sometimes bringing him up. Like he's mm-hmm. supposed to be like a leading scholar. He really isn't. A lot of his work was kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the guy earlier, I was talking to Chris Hansen about it. And he's like, yeah, Thompson's not really like, he's too far liberal to be taken serious by the mainstream community. <laughs> to be to be fair, I mean, they don't take a lot of like, you know, the very conservatives that super serious either. But, you know, I, when me, people bring up Thompson, I'm always like, oh, I got to be a little careful. Mm-hmm. But even at that, Richard Hess uh, wrote a chapter in um, uh, behind the scenes of the Old Testament, where he kind of debunked a lot of Thompson's arguments and reestablished that there are a lot of good connections to ch- customs we see in Genesis, to we, tablets we see at Nuzi or at Mari or at Akala. Uh, so, for example, Genesis 12 talks about Abraham adopting Eleazar to be his uh, uh, his heir. Uh, well, the Nuzi tablets talk about adopting sons as being legal heirs, but if a biological son was born, the adopted heir uh, was uh, all of his rights were voided immediately. And that's what we see happening in Abraham. You know, Isaac is, is born, and we don't ever hear about Eliezer ever again. Another interesting custom is a barren wife shall supply her handmaiden to bear children. This is like an insurance policy, and that's what we see Sarah doing. This is attested at Nuzi and Akala. Uh, but the custom seemed to die out by the late Bronze Age. Uh, Nuzi texts speak of uh, an Arabu marriage where the heir is adopted and marries the daughter. And it seems to, it seems to line up in a lot of ways with what we see. See in Genesis 29 with Laban taking in um, uh, Jacob, saying now he's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So he seems to adopt him as his own, and then he marries the daughters to him. Uh, Abraham and Isaac call their wives sisters at times. Mm-hmm. That's weird to us. We're like, why? Is he a sister? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, newsy texts do record that a woman could be adopted by another family on the position she is then married into that family. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a family would be like, okay, take our daughter. She's now a sister in this family, but you have to marry her even though she's not your biological okay. sister. Okay. So it's interesting they call their wives sisters because the families tend to adopt them and then marry them in. Okay. Okay. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me one second. <laughs> see, yeah, see, uh, this is why I like uh, Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. He, 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 does, he does apologetics and he just does, um, you know, he talks about, he has conversations on things that, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people would yeah. put a lot of thought and reading into. So I feel, yeah, I, just feel I feel dumb. <laughs> I feel dumb right now, <laughs> and what I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. New, newsy texts also record household idols as acting as deeds for property, which would explain why Rachel took Laban, her father's you know, household deities, when they mm, ran and left, because mm. that gave her a right to the property, mm. and that's why Laban was so desperate to get those back. She's I've like, always oh. found it a little odd that oh, yeah. he really wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it makes sense if you understand the Newsy tablets. Uh-huh. This is, again, if you're making up history in Babylon, you're not going to know these kind of things. Sure. You're going to correlate with a much later culture. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. another, the final thing I want to mention is just think about what the Jews wrote down. Mm-hmm. So they say – they're telling the, – in Babylon, they're basically saying that you know we have a right to Canaan because of this history we're telling you of Abraham, which is basically that a foreigner – Moved into the area, had a bunch of descendants who were slaves in Egypt. They came up and conquered it all, and that gives them a right to the land over other Canaanite groups like the like the, the later Palestinians or Philistines or other groups that wanted the territory. Okay, that's basically like saying – a bunch of Hindus were saying we're living in Texas, and they said, our god Krishna gave us this land. 
Because we had an ancestor from India, and he was promised this land when he moved here. Therefore, all you Texans have to, you know, it's not ours. Get out of here. Yeah, we wouldn't like that. <laughs> Shotgun noises. <laughs> uh, no. But yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, they, you'd think yeah. if you were constructing history, you'd say that right, right, our right, ancestor yeah. was the first one there. Yeah. He was Noah's great-grandson. He was the first one to step in Canaan. Therefore, it's ours. But that's not what they say. Abraham is an Amorite. His wife is a Hittite, according to later uh, uh, prophetic texts. And then he's living in Ur, and then he moves to Canaan, and therefore it's his land. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're making up history, you're doing a horrible job. Yeah. Um, all right, Michael Jones. Well, is there um, is there anything else you would like to share? Because we're already we're already coming up on the the top of the hour. Let me just give people some sources so they can fact check me on these things because I don't want to leave people hanging on that. Oh, that's awesome. I got a lot of books you can look at. Mm. Uh, one book I would start with is one of my favorite books is Israelite Religions by Richard Hess, an archaeological and biblical survey. He covers a lot of really good data. Mm. Uh, there's another good book recently by David E. Gray. It's called Biblical Archaeology. He just surveys recent discoveries within like the past two decades, and he fills an entire book because there's so much to put in there. Uh, another book um, is you got to read this if you want to really read Old Testament archaeology. It's kind of like the beginning book. It's on the reliability of the Old Testament mm-hmm. by Kenneth Kitchen. Okay. I disagree with like when he places the Exodus. You know, remember the last time I was on, I talked about the Exodus right, yeah. on a previous one. So I date the Exodus a little different than he does, but he does a, he presents a lot of good data regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out a book behind the scenes of the Old Testament. Each uh, chapter has a different author. Another good book is A Biblical History of Israel, the second edition, uh, by Proven Long and Longman III. Uh, great book there. Um, on uh, Another book, I mean, John Walton does a lot about the internal stuff. Uh, that is, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's um, Ancient Years from Son of the Old Testament. Uh, In Search of God by Trigvay Menninger is also a pretty good book. And then, of course, there's dozens of papers. Um, Israel in Egypt by Hoffmeyer is pretty good. I mean, I, Stephen Collins' book, uh, Discovery of the City of Sodom, is another one I have here. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's so many books to go that over. A lot. How that did you a- get? How did you just reach a passion for uh, history and the subject? I'm, it's always been something I'm interested in. Mm. Even when I was in high school, when I was sort of doubting Christianity, I read a lot of like I was really into like Egyptian mythology and Greek mythology. So I read a lot of those books, and that's why when like pre-Zeitgeist websites were coming out arguing that Jesus was a myth. I was like, these people don't know what they're talking about. I have the books right here. This is this is not, has nothing to do with Horace. What are they talking about? Right, right. Wow. <laughs> right. It's so stupid. Yeah. And I was surprised people were falling for it. Yeah. Wow. And that's interesting because I just counted in my head. Yeah, we've we've had you on four times because the first time, I believe, was on the, uh, the Jesus is a myth. <laughs> yeah. No, the first time was on, like, Genesis Yeah. And, uh, if it aligned with evolution, was, then I yes, know about Exodus that, and then Jesus. That's right. Jesus. Yeah. The last one was Jesus because I yeah. was on on that one. Oh man! Well, as we always like to end the program, Michael. Um, you know, we 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 love talking apologetics. We definitely uh, were intrigued by the subject, but we know yes. that um, people are drawn to saving faith, uh, to eternal life through the message of the gospel, and so we always allow our guests to share the gospel uh, to our audience to those for those who are listening. Sure. I, I tend to share it a different way than some people. I, I remind people of their psychological state. So regardless of who you are or what you do, you will feel superior to someone else. If you're a religious person, you can't help but feel superior to people who are not in your religion. 
uh, you look down on those people because they're not doing the right things. If you're an atheist, you can't help but feel superior to those dumb religious people who believe in gods and all these weird mythologies, you call them. Or what if you're just a really hardworking person? You can't help but feel superior to lazy people. But the gospel says you're a moral failure. The gospel says nothing you could do to get, can give you superiority, and you need grace. You need to be saved by someone, not of your own works so that no one could boast, but only by what he has done. So think about how that applies. I know a lot of atheists online who are probably better people than me in a lot of ways. They, they volunteer more time to help out. They give more to charity. Uh, so they probably are more intelligent than me in a lot of other ways. But how could I say that? They're, I'm supposed to be superior to them because I'm on Jesus' side. But the truth is I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace alone. So it doesn't matter how good I am. What matters is how good he was. If that's at the center of your life, that's going to equip you to change. That's going to equip you to really be a good person and do the good. And so the gospel is unique and better than any other system out there because it really gets to the heart of what's plaguing humanity, which is our own pride, and it defeats it at its core. Amen. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Michael. We will have you back on the program again. I don't know what other topic we got to get more crazy. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's right. a lot of just interesting stuff going on out there. And yeah. yeah, no, thank you for coming on, Michael. We really appreciate yeah. it. I can always talk about so many other topics. Uh, maybe in March, there's a secret, there's a, some secret research I'm doing. I could come on after that video is up to talk about it. All right, let's do it. Ooh. Awesome. All right. All right, Michael. Well, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All righty, ladies and gentlemen. That was a boatload of information. I feel myself sinking in info. Yeah. I'm sinking right now. <laughs> I'm sinking myself in, uh, yeah, wow, facts. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Michael Jones. I really love what he's doing. Please go check out his YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that he um that he's he's almost on full time. And yeah. I, I remember when I was having questions about my faith uh, a couple of years back, I came across his channel, helped me tremendously. And I think, um, I think honestly, his ministry is very good for atheists because he's just so fact-based mm-hmm. and research-based and peer review-based. So, you yeah. know, he's just, he's very, um, he, he's got a mind. Uh, I, I find it so amazing just how God just gives people just gifts. Those gifts, yeah. Like, I can never do that, mm-hmm. you know? Nor can you. Like you're right. just talking to him, and you're just like, whoa, like, mm-hmm. like, and just putting all the just. It's a fire hose de- just coming yeah. at you, and you're like, ah. or just the details that are just <laughs> right. going in there that he's just studying, right? And and, and God knows what he's doing when sure. he, he puts people on this earth, he, because there's there's always that other side who is saying, no, this is true, and then yeah. we got people like Michael Jones is just calling go, out and that you can bring on and and, and, have, and yeah, and have factual conversation of uh, information that is true. Mm-hmm. So no, that was really awesome. Yeah, I always I always say Michael Jones and Eric. Hernandez, who are uh, two two of my brothers in Christ, who I love a lot. They're like fire hoses. They're just shooting all this water mm-hmm. out very fast at you, mm-hmm. but at the end of it, you're still gonna get wet. <laughs> oh yeah. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, um, if you're new to the program, please subscribe, share. As I've always said, with your cats, your dogs, your mom, your dad, um, everybody. We are a uh, Christian podcast. Talk about eschatology, apologetics soteriology um, subjects you name it if you want us to talk about a certain subject email me at mm. julio uh, at bridgemanlaredo.org visit our website to see what we are all about yes. at bridgemanlaredo.org and uh, we will see you on the next episode and uh, as always I ask one question what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death my faithful savior Jesus Christ we'll see you on the next one later later later